Welcome to Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC Squared. On this episode of the podcast, I interview Libby Bacalar. She is a mom, a lawyer, an activist, and a blogger. You can check out our content at One Hot Mess Alaska. And on the show today, we discuss politics, law, and justice. I hope you enjoy Solidarity Forever. profession. So I kind of cold called around and I found um, 
a good fellowship opportunity in a small town in rural Alaska. And I went up there and worked there for the summer and I really liked it. And then I uh, came back to finish up law school and wanted to go back. Um, and so I went back and worked for a judge up there uh, in Alaska in a different town. Um, and then kind of just stayed after that. And that was almost 20 years ago. So. Oh, you know, wow. Um, so you, yeah. do you come back uh, to the continental, I guess, U.S. Um, or whatever, you know, whatever it's called, you know, down here in the, uh, the continuous, the, the I lower guess. 48. Yeah, yeah, the lower 48. Lower 48. You come down here much? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you can't get anywhere outside of Juneau without flying through Seattle. So I'm very familiar with the SeaTac C- airport. Um, I do. I have friends and family all over the country. So I do quite a bit of traveling. So I'm, I'm pretty much down in the States at least two or three times a year. Pretty expensive for my kind of research. I was uh, looking at maybe moving up there, having to ship all my stuff to Seattle, and then from there <laughs> onto a barge up north and maybe buying a car in Seattle. So uh, what I've heard and with my research before I you know, seriously started looking into this job was very expensive, uh, including what, real estate, groceries, pretty much everything. Is that is that uh, how you see it, too, compared to the rest of the U.S.? Yeah. Yeah, certainly. But again, I grew up in uh, New York City, so everything seems cheap by comparison to there. Um, But yeah, it is definitely more expensive than like the middle of the country or the south or anything like that. It's certainly, um, you know, I I would call it for the East Coast cost of living. Let's get into some politics stuff. So you sound like you're an insider. You're kind of inside the system. You work within the system, the criminal justice system. Um, kind of just doing a little bit of research today, uh, your blog, one hot mess, popular blog. So congrats on that. It's pretty cool. Uh, I read some of the articles, but one of them that caught my attention, you got illegally fired from, was this a public, uh, sector job and you were an assistant, uh, uh, attorney general or something along those lines. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So, yeah. So just to clarify, I actually don't do any criminal cases. I just do civil, um, work. But and I was doing civil cases at that time. But yeah, I was an assistant attorney general in the state department of law. And in 2018, there was an election and a sort of um, Trump, Trumpian type acolyte came on and fired me within like three hours of taking office. And the background for it was I had this blog and I was very open about my blog and who I was and I wasn't trying to hide it um, because I had, I knew a constitutional right to express myself on my free time about basically Trump and the state of the world and stuff. Um, And so they didn't like that and they fired me. And the problem with that is they're a public employer and you can't fire a uh, public employee for generally speaking, for expressing their constitutionally protected free speech uh, rights, for exercising those rights. And so that's what happened. And when that happened, because uh, I'm a lawyer, I knew what they had done was illegal. So I filed a lawsuit and it took five years, but I ultimately won the lawsuit, got a nominal amount of damages from them and have fully just moved on with my life to other pursuits. So. 
Yeah, I mean, that's awesome. Uh, the system, though, is kind of stacked against uh, the little guy. You know, um, not saying, you know, you at least have a background in law, though. Um, no comment on your means or anything like that. But, like, generally, you know, working people, it's tough. You know, a lot of working people don't have the time, the money, the legal knowledge, the resources. So I'm more, like, kind of anti-corporate in terms of the way I go about things. So when you get sued by a corporation or you whatever sue a corporation or someone with you know wealth and power maybe like Trump for example they can uh, afford to just kind of tied up in court and endless legal fees will bleed you dry and that's kind of the idea they want you to just kind of give it up right so if it took you 5 years i mean i'm sure it cost you a lot of time money effort but um you know what what, what kind of kept you going and maybe what's your view of the legal system i th- i see it as kind of unfair it's uh, kind of um, stacked in the favor of people and corporations with wealth and power. Um, so, yeah, what did what did your five-year fight teach you? And just what do you think about the legal system generally here in well, the United States? I'd like to talk about that as well. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, those are two different questions. For my five-year fight, I just knew that the wheels of justice turn very slowly, even for someone like me who's a fairly sophisticated litigant um, as an attorney plaintiff. Um, and it still was grueling and horrible and took forever. And as to the second question, uh, and just what kept me going was just the rectitude of my position. I knew I was right. I knew I had to prove that, that I was right. Um, when it comes to the Constitution, you know, if you don't enforce it, it's like it never existed to begin with. So I felt like I had to see this thing through to the end, enforce this part of the Constitution. Um, and I finally did get a judge to agree that the state had violated those rights. And so I felt good about that. But yeah, it took a long time. And you're absolutely right. Leading into your second question about um, the system, it's absolutely inequitable. It's absolutely stacked against the little guy. It favors the, uh, in the same way that, you know, history is written by the victors, the law is written by people with the wealth and the power. And they write the laws to favor themselves. And I think before we started talking, you mentioned corporate personhood. Corporate personhood is one of the most um, insidious developments in the law and society that I can think of. Because the problem with corporate personhood is a corporation has all of the rights and privileges of a natural person, but it doesn't have any of the responsibilities, really. So, for example, uh, uh, like you say, after Citizens United, money is speech, and the corporate corporations are people, and they can speak through money and all of this. And but they're never really penalized in the way people are. You don't see a corporation ever suffering a criminal consequence of any real measure. So they have all of the, like I say, they have all of the rights and privileges and none of the responsibilities of a real person. So, and that is, and, and the people that wrote those laws are wealthy, corporate, capitalist barons, you know, that have been around in this country since the early 19th century is probably when this, I know we People talk about being in late stage capitalism or the early stages of this form of capitalism that we're living in really started in the um, kind of the 1800s with the robber baron era. Oh, yeah, no doubt. 
And I think the um, um, I think there was a court case in the early 1900s. I think someone was uh, suing a railroad or something along those lines, and that's when the first legal precedent uh, early in the 1910s, you know, something like that, where corporations became people, and it's been ever, uh, more and more insidious ever since. Um, so you are a lawyer. Uh, I'm a big fan of Chomsky. I'm only recycling some of the Chomsky's words here, but I totally agree with it. Uh, part of a lawyer's job is to turn words into things that don't mean. So now, again, like you were saying, and uh, let's, let's kind of hit on this a little bit. People are now corporations, um, or you know, or corporations are, are not people essentially. So corporations have the rights of uh, very powerful, immortal persons. They live on forever. Um, they even have the rights to sue governments. Um, part of NAFTA. Uh, I think is giving uh, American-based corporations the rights of um, Mexican citizens. Uh, but for example, if you try to, I'm down here in Texas. If you try to go over the border and claim to be an American citizen as a Mexican, that's not going to work out too well. Um, and I think it's you know absurd. We should not um, stand for it. We should not um, live in a society where corporations have the same rights of immortal persons. They can sue governments. Um, and a lot of times, like, um, you know, corporations put state governments in competition with one another to see who can get the lowest taxes, and then the corporation moves there. So Elon Musk and all that kind of stuff, he's been playing these state governments to his favor for a long time. Uh, Jeff Bezos, when he's talking about um, headquarters for Amazon, you know, he's always like between two or three different cities, and it's always a, a contest to see who can give him the best deal, you know, who can give him the lowest taxes, the lowest tax burden, the be- the most subsidies, and then that's where he's going to put that next headquarters. And then, yeah, again, Citizens United, now speech is money, it's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, these are legal precedents, um, they were made by courts, in the, in the courts, they were not, um, you know, part of congressional um, legislation, so these can easily be returned, overturned, I should say. Uh, corporate charters could be revoked, so there's a lot of things we can do from a legal standpoint. Uh, but I think one of the issues, and my biggest issues with, with capitalism, is uh, corporations, uh, you know, again, given the rights of immortal persons, um, are essentially the vehicles the rich and powerful use to dominate every facet of society. Uh, and, I, and I don't think we should stand for it. Uh, I'm in favor of anarcho-syndicalists, so that's kind of my, um, you know, ideology, what I believe in. Uh, but I'm all for, like, kind of, you know, society to be organized around democratic workplaces, you know, where maybe we don't have layers of hierarchy or we don't have, you know, CEOs making 300-plus times what the lowest-paid employee makes. I'm a big fan of, like, co-ops, for example, Mondragon, you know, the average, um, the average uh, worker um, can't make less than like five times on average, the highest paid employee, five to 10 times somewhere in there. They have like ranges and, and salary maxes. And then the other thing with a co-op could do is of, of course you share uh, management responsibility. You know, normal workers have input, um, you know, in policy formation, decision-making and in Mondragon, they actually even vote on the managers. It's not the other way around, but in fact, employees vote that who's going to be manager. And once the term's up, you know, if they did a bad job, they're out. Uh, and then, of course, they could also equally distribute profits, um, you know, with uh, amongst the workforce uh, instead of just having those, uh, you know, profits concentrated within a tiny group of people, you know, and then executive suites and the, the board of directors. 
What say you about the corporations? What do you think about just corporations generally? That's my biggest enemy. That's where I think the problems are in our society. I mean, uh, and then, I, I, yeah. So I think the phenomenon you're talking about in general can be described under the umbrella of um, corporate capture, which is, um, you know, these transnational um, syndicates really um, are, you're right, have, have taken over every aspect of government. They've insinuated themselves into government in a way that makes government and corporations indistinguishable from each other so that we live in what is essentially now a corporatocracy. Um, that's what we really live in. Um, and that's because we've allowed corporations to have rights of natural persons. We've allowed corporations to buy our elected officials. We've allowed corporations to establish the rules of government. And so there is no separation really between corporations and government. They're all mixed in together. So that we're really, we live in a corporatocracy as a result. And naturally, those corporations are not going to have the best interests of the people at heart. They're not populist. They exist to make money and meet their bottom line and um, be profitable. And so you can't have a society that functions at a populist level when it's run, when it's all, when the whole governing structure is bought and paid for already by, you know, private sector corporate interests. I mean, you see this, I'm sure it's, you know, this is true in health insurance. Uh, that's a really good example of an industry that's like this, the fossil fuel industry, very interwoven with government. Um, you know, those are two gigantic lucrative industries that are impact everybody's daily lives enormously. Uh, and the reason they're able to is because we've allowed them into our government governing structure so intimately. Um, I didn't allow so, them in there. They took it. They they took power. <laughs> they marched know? in there. Oh well, yeah, we, they marched I mean, in there. And they took as, power. We as, a, we as a society have allowed that to happen. I mean, if yeah, if you believe want, we live in a democracy, want, right? Do we live in so. a democracy? What do you think about that? Nominally. Um, I think we live in an ailing democracy. I think we're an empire in decline or in free fall. <laughs> um, I tend to agree. Really. And um, we are in for a very big reckoning in the next 20 to 30 years. It's interesting times that we live in. I don't know how old you are, but um, I think for, for people who were born uh, after Vietnam, and grew up before 9-11, so like Gen X, that was a sort of, like for that, for like an upper middle class or even lower middle class American citizen at that time, it was sort of a lull, sort of like a, kind of a, not exactly a halcyon period, but sort of a, a mellow period in history, right? And now everything is like, we're, ever since 9-11, it's like, we're in unprecedented times and this unprecedented thing and that unprecedented thing. And to my mind, what, what history shows is that everything is unprecedented. There's always something huge going on. And we live in, we're living in some more dramatic timelines than we grew up or that I grew up realizing could exist because my childhood 
happened to time out with a period of history that was in this country anyway, domestically, um, fairly calm, I guess you could say. Um, but that's not the case anymore. And, you know, the direction that climate is going, the direction that autocracy is going, we're in for a de very different uh, second half of life. Yeah, I think I think it's going to keep getting worse, though, unless working people come together. There's some class consciousness. There's some, some solidarity. I feel like, you know, the propaganda system is so well oiled here in America. What they try to do is divide and conquer. Trump took advantage of that. Uh, Democrats are the party of resistance, I guess. Uh, I think we have a one party state, the business party with two factions, uh, it's essentially a one-party state with moderate Republicans, you know, uh, Mitt, your Mitt Romney's, your Joe Biden's, your Obama's. I mean, those are the people that tend to, you know, come to power here, uh, you know, center right, you know, kind of there's not many. <laughs> I mean, Bernie, uh, I, I guess, is looked at as like a socialist, um, a far leftist. Um, but I only think he's a radical if you think that basic human rights are radical. You know what I mean? I think he's talking about like yeah, healthcare I mean, I and Bernie education. Sa yeah, I mean, I think the fact that Bernie Sanders' ideas are thought of as radical is less a statement about the radical nature of Bernie Sanders' ideas and more a statement of how far to the right we have swung in terms of what our priorities are um, and our and in terms of the 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 amount of fealty we are routinely and 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 just giving willy-nilly to corporate interests at all times i mean the fact that his ideas seem radical is not a statement to me about that his ideas are radical is that our standards are so low for what um we should be pursuing as a body politic that's concerned with like you say basic human rights yeah, I think it's elites, though. It's the elites. It's the media companies. I think there's a handful of media companies owned by an even smaller group of billionaires that control the information system, not just the media and the media companies, but Hollywood, uh, the Internet, the search engines. I mean, everything. Technology generally is controlled by, you know, a, a small group of people in, the, in a fraction of the 1%, and their agenda is the same, and it's much different than the agenda of the population. So, for example, uh, they, there's a lot of talk about the common good. Chomsky, my favorite author, actually has a book about that. But generally, what is the common good? You might have a, a different idea of what the common good is than me. You know, the CEO might have a little bit different uh, idea of what the common good is or a different agenda than the janitor that cleans his floors, you know? So um, generally, though, like, I'm in favor of democracy, um, you know, the majority rules, that kind of stuff. Like, for example, I'm in favor of defund the police for sure. We live in a police state. We live in a state of mass incarceration. We've left, we've left the rest of the world way behind. Uh, the Soviet Union and some of the most um, authoritarian, um, you know, uh, regimes in the world. We, we lock our population up in an even higher clip than, you know, a, a country like the Soviet Union, which was a dungeon. Um, but, you know, I think just generally 
the population is so far to the left on almost every issue. For example, 66% uh, in a poll I saw wants a ceasefire uh, in Gaza. You know, and what does, what does our government do? They send them billions and billions of more dollars to commit genocide on our dime. Uh, they, the majority of um, Americans want student loan justice. They, they think at least $10,000, but uh, many are, I think the majority are in favor of $50,000 cancellation. Most want uh, affordable college, free college even, uh, and certainly free community college. Most want a healthcare system. Most want Medicare expanded. Most want, um, you know, increased social security for um, people later in life. So all these things, um, the majority of the population want, but we can't have them because the, uh, the, the, the crooks in Washington don't work for us, the population. They group, they work for a tiny sector of the population that essentially controls the corporate sector. You know, maybe the fraction of 1%, but certainly the top 10% um, of Americans that own the majority of the assets. I think there's like a, what, um, a handful of people, maybe a couple dozen people uh, in the world that own more wealth than the bottom 50% of the world combined. I think that's a major problem when, you know, a couple dozen people have more wealth than, um, you know, three or four billion people. What kind of society is that? And a lot of these, a lot of that wealth here is concentrated in America and American-based transnational corporations. But for example, you know, international law allows uh, Apple to be headquartered in Ireland so they can skirt corporate tax rates. So uh, unfortunately, you know, there are major problems here in America, and that's what I tend to focus on. The international system is no better. For example, internationally, you know, we have tax havens and shell companies in Panama and the Virgin Islands and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, we can raise corporate taxes and raise taxes on the rich here, but without a functioning IRS. And, of course, the right wing wants to um, dismantle the IRS so that, you know, it make, make it easier for the rich to kind of hoard their money. And I've seen figures, there's something like, man, this is like years ago, but like $21 trillion of dark money, offshore money, money that we can't account for. Uh, I want to go back to what you talked about a little bit, though. Regulatory capture. So, essentially, when... Um, you know, we have this corporate state nexus, and that's starting to get into fascist territory. Uh, you know, that's what, what we kind of had uh, in Nazi Germany. We had this corporate sector, this government sector, and they, the lines were very blurred. And then what we get is like regulatory capture. So, for example, the 2008 financial crisis, the, the greedy bankers who made risky investments that crashed the economy, they were the same people chosen by the Obama administration. His entire administration was made up of Wall Street insiders. So they were the same exact people he chose to try to rebuild the economy and the banking system. So I, I've kind of made this comparison before. It would be a lot like having big tobacco executives make child smoking laws. You know what I mean? So that's what I see from regulatory capture uh, and just basically essentially the, you know, the people, um, you know, the, the people in these industries, whether it's the military and defense um you know, sector or whether it's um, big pharma writing, you know, healthcare legislation or whether it's, you know, I think essentially for Obamacare, which the, the population didn't like Obamacare because they didn't think it went far enough. That was essentially written by the healthcare lobby. So what you get is lobbyists in these, um, you know, in these sectors of the economy from healthcare to um, finance and banking uh, to the military and defense. I mean, basically they, they're lobbyists 
write the laws almost completely. I mean, you're you're more of an insider certainly than I am. Um, but you know, how does how does the uh, I think what did the what did the Supreme Court say once? Uh, it's kind of like sausage. You don't want it to be see, to being made or something like that or something along no, those it's lines. No, a, it's a, a it it was an opinion about obscenity. Oh, and it was the I can't remember the justice that wrote it. Um, but it was you know it when you see it. Oh yeah, yeah. Pornography, yeah, pornography or obscenity. What does obscenity right. mean? You know it when you see it. Yeah. So how, how does that work? I mean, maybe you can talk a little bit about your position in government and just, you know, maybe the maybe your involvement and what's what's it like even getting elected? Was your was your was your, was your position appointed or did you get elected to that? No, program? it was neither. It was neither. It was just a regular oh, okay. government bureaucrat job. It was just a line attorney job, which is why it was still protected by the, the Constitution, really. Got it. And the Alaska Constitution, which has broader free speech protections than the federal Constitution does. Um, but it was just a regular state government job. And, um, you know, I was a government, regular government lawyer, just line attorney, regular, yeah. nothing special, nothing appointed, nothing, you know, particularly high level, nothing policy based. Regular lawyer, government lawyer, civil civil service type stuff. What what kind of so, law are you interested in? What kind of law? You uh, know? Well, so what I did then for the state was um, elections law primarily, um, <clears throat> and now I do mostly municipal law. Um, but all of it is, uh, you know, there's overlap there with um, constitutional issues, and now with the work I do now, you know, planning and zoning and contracts and leases and procurements, just the things that make local government run. When I worked for the state, it was more about, um, I, I, I worked in a lot of different, for a lot of different agencies uh, representing different aspects of state government, everything from the Department of Public Health to the Division of Elections to sometimes, you know, various boards and commissions and just things all over the government. So. So I was checking out your blog and your Twitter handle and your Facebook. Um, you wrote a law review about uh, the ballot reform and ranked choice voting and that kind of stuff. Can you um, maybe um, talk about it? Yeah. yeah. So, I, well, the law review article I wrote um, was about the ballot initiative process in general in Alaska. It was called um, Alaska's Ballot Initiative Process History uh, I think it's called the Leftist Ballot Initiative History, Practice, and Process. Just about the history of the ballot initiative in the state, how it works, um, the uh, restrictions on it, uh, how the different phases of it uh, work to get the, a measure to the ballot. Um, and then I separately worked on the uh, Ranked Choice and Open Primary Ballot Initiative, which was called Ballot Measure 2, which passed in 20. 22, I believe, or actually 2022, I think was the first election with it. I think it may have passed in 2020, um, making Alaska the first state in the nation to have open primaries and ranked choice voting together. So I helped work on that ballot measure a little bit with the people, the main people that funded it and did it. Um, and it was a very interesting, cool experience. And as a result, we have the first Alaska Native woman in Congress who's a Democrat. Mary Peltola, who also happens to be a really good friend of mine, um, ranked choice voting and open primary definitely helped get her elected. 
um, it definitely put, I think, more reasonable people, more, more sort of sane people into the Alaska legislature. Uh, the idea behind it being, you know, it, it rewards um, moderation a little bit more and keeps people from having to choose between the lesser of two evils and it keeps the power of the parties much more uh, in check, which I agree with you. I, I do not like the two party system. I don't like political parties as entities. And so I thought the open primary was a really good development in the state. That's awesome. Can you, um, cause I've looked into it a little bit. I, I'm sure there's a number of ways to do things, but, um, with the ranked choice voting, uh, I guess like the, the candidates that finish the lowest, they get thrown out and then you kind of rank them from what one to four. Yeah. Or so, yeah so, so what we have is, I'll tell you what works in Alaska. We have a top four open primary and a ranked choice general election. So that means we have an open primary with pretty much as many people as can fit onto the paper. And then the top four winners advance to the general and the general is done by ranked choice voting. And the way the ranked choice voting ballot looks is there's uh, one through, um, uh, your choices are listed one through four, you put them in order and the lowest vote getter, there's an initial tally of votes, the lowest vote getter gets thrown out and then there's another tally and then the next one gets thrown out and then it's, the process repeats until you have a, a, a majority winner. Um, so uh, it's it's good. I mean, it's like you know, any it makes sense to anybody at, like who's going to the store for ice cream. Like, well, if they don't have mint chocolate chip, can you get me like praline or something? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's yeah. it's just, it's as simple as that. Yeah. So, um, what do you think about? Anyway, it worked, it worked really well. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. I hope every state would adopt that. I think it's a lot of. Uh, I think it's a system that a lot of countries in Europe uh, I've read about. One uh, issue that I have is with the lack of real working class representation uh, in Washington and at the state level, at the local level as well. Uh, I do think that you know I have I have an issue with I don't know ninety plus percent of. Um, our elected representatives having like a law background. I mean, I'm all in favor of, you know, having experts on legal processes being in government. But my issue would be like, why don't we have more teachers? Why don't we have more doctors? Why don't we have more engineers? You know, a, a, a broader scope of society instead of a lot of, you know, corporate lawyer elite types. Or, for example, on the Supreme Court, I would be much more in favor of a um, public defender, you know, than someone that went to some elite Ivy League, uh, you know, institution and then, you know, clerked with uh, some Supreme Court justice because of maybe some connections or whatever. Uh, I just want to see a lot more real working class representation. People actually, you know, that have... Um, you know, that work for a living, that are normal people that, you know, you live, <laughs> you live in the same community as, you know, have uh, a say in not just um, pulling a lever every couple of years to vote for one or another terrible choice and, you know, voting against the least bad choice, but not just voting to ratify decisions made by elites, but for actually working people to have a say in policy formation, like, again, for expansion of Medicare, for ceasefire in Gaza, um, for, you know, affordable college and, you know, healthcare 
uh, that it's an actual working system. I mean, we have we don't have a healthcare system in the United States. We have a national scandal. Um, but yeah, what do you think about just generally, um, you know, real working class representation? I think that so if you look at like Germany, I was looking kind of their their Congress makeup a few years back, and it, it kind of was. I mean, again, nothing against lawyers, but I don't think a hundred percent or ninety percent of um, you know elected representatives should be, you know, corporate lobby types, but, you know, again, maybe more diverse. So, you know, take, for example, like your local community, bus drivers, you know, people that work in factories, all that kind of stuff. I think that um, there should be, uh, you know, equally distributed, um, you know, uh, like roles in the community and maybe one, one year you go and, and, and represent your local community uh, and then the next year someone else is chosen and it's you know kind of a burden but I, I definitely don't think that we need necessarily like uh, um, you know full-time politicians that right after they win their next election uh, they're already ready trying to campaign for the for the next cycle so I think that just the this the disgust of um, you know money in politics and the fact that it takes like seven billion dollars I think the 2020 election it was 14 billion dollars spent total uh, to run for it uh, so I just you know split that in half essentially seven billion dollars you know it takes uh, for for you to kind of run for president, and we have you know Joe Biden, a career insider in Washington, versus you know a billionaire who you know, essentially just decided to cut out the the middleman, to cut out the political class, and just represent you know the ruling class himself. So uh, just just the money in politics and the and the lack of representation uh, of working people uh, is an issue for me. Like, what do you think about my point um, of maybe having like? Uh, you know, someone like a public defender, for example, sit on the Supreme Court that maybe went to a state school. Oh my gosh, you know, not maybe, maybe not an Ivy Leaguer, you know what I mean? I mean, I think that would be great. I think it would engender a lot more trust in the Supreme Court. I think, you know, you're right, the Supreme Court is probably the most elite institution in the country. Um, and the way you get there is through certain pipelines that are accessible to only certain people. And so it's not a meritocracy, it's certainly not. A democracy, uh, and I think it's you know very underrepresentative of even the legal profession, right? So I mean, but again, the deck is stacked because the whole system is set up to incentivize people with lots of connections, access, and money to get into these positions, and the kinds of people that you're describing that we all as a society would benefit from having representing us in office can't access those systems so it's sort of a bit of a catch-22 until we really redefine the way these systems are structured and move the overton window and begin to imagine a different way of doing things uh, i don't see a whole lot changing i agree with you and you said maybe one of my favorite words the system you didn't you didn't pick out a specific person or you didn't say, you know, all our problems are the result of Trump or, or Joe Biden. You said the system, and that's exactly right. I 100% agree there. The system needs reform. We're not getting some hero in there that save us. You know, I don't want to elect some dictator uh, that, you know, is going to be saving the, the ruling class because that never works out there's well. A, what we need to do is a, change the system. There's a famous line about fascism, which is that uh, an autocracy, which is that your institutions will not save you. and that's another way of saying the system won't save you. I like to quote, 
Well, I, I yeah. to quote Emma Goldman. She says she's an anarchist philosopher, and she said if voting could change anything, they would have already made it illegal. Um, Probably true. <laughs> I, I think so too. Um, I mean, I don't think I don't think voting changes <clears throat> a lot. It doesn't change as much as it should. I still think it's worth doing. Me even too. In the limit, with the limitations that we have. Me too. I think the Republicans would absolutely love it if, uh, you know, Democrats and far leftists just decided to just completely, um, you know, remove themselves from uh, electoral well, politics. I mean, at, they, and, and to your point about if voting worked, they would make it illegal already. I mean, that's what a lot of Republicans are trying to do. You're right. So they're trying to make voting illegal for a lot of people. So it does work to some degree because. If it didn't, there wouldn't be such an effort to suppress it. So, so I, so I don't think it's um, accurate to say it doesn't do anything. Uh, you can see that voting works and unions work because you can see how hard systems work against those things from happening, right? So how hard certain interests work to stop people from voting, how hard certain management entities work from stopping labor unions you know, they do work to some degree or there wouldn't be so much resistance against them. That's what I think it is. I don't necessarily think it's voting, but I think it's public pressures. I think it's strikes. I think it's protests. I think it's, you know, uh, thousands and maybe even hundreds of thousands or even millions of people, you know, in the streets all over the world, you know, fighting for a ceasefire in Gaza. The ruling class sees that kind of stuff. Um, whether or not someone got voted into office is one thing, but to actually see some civil disobedience on the streets, that's when I think real stuff gets done. So I like, you know, Chomsky's my favorite philosopher. He says it should take you all of five seconds to decide who to vote for, you know, to pull one lever for one or another bad choice and just vote for the least bad. Uh, that's our system, Chomsky unfortunately. Was, um, Chomsky was a friend of my uncle's, actually. They were good good bud that's my guy so, i love that guy i never got i never got to meet him but he was a really good good friend of my uncle jake and i, I don't know if you knew this but my my grandpa my on my maternal side was a un, labor organizer during world war one i've written about this on my blog a bunch anyway he went to jail for sedition for union organizing yeah, that was a that was the Red Scare, right? That was right around Woodrow Wilson and the Red Scare. There was a lot of uh, anti-union uh, and you know. Yeah, Red Scare. it was in the yeah. tw- it was in the 20s. It was um, he was organizing copper miners during World War One, and he got arrested for sedition under the Espionage Act. So. Yeah, we have a very uh, very violent labor history in the United States. I'm from Western Pennsylvania. I speak on this quite a bit. Um, but when the uh, steel workers in Homestead Steelworks were striking for um, better wages, a shorter day, better safety standards, they wanted you know at least one day off a week. What the robber barons, which we initially started our conversation with, Andrew Carnegie and his henchman, his right hand man Frick, they brought in the uh, Pinkertons, which is the private security forces, to rough them up, kill them. The Homestead massacre, they shot people down. And all these people were doing was trying to get, you know, they wanted their dignity. They wanted their bread. They wanted their roses. You know, they wanted to be treated like a human being. So they weren't machines. They didn't want to be sucking these dangerous steel mills six days a week, 12 hours a day for a couple bucks. Uh, and the robber barons did not like that resistance. So they brought in the Pinkertons to kill them. 
uh, essentially. But you, we had mentioned a little bit about the system, a lot of nepotism, crony capitalism maybe, uh, and that's one of the descriptive characteristics of fascism. We already said that it's corporate state nexus, so we're always teetering on that line here in a capitalist society. But I would certainly not describe uh, the United States as a fascist society. It's much different than what was going on in the 1930s Europe. However, uh, I will like to, I always like to mention this study, uh, speaking of the Ivy League institutions, those ivory towers that we mentioned a few minutes ago in our discussion about the system and how there's a pipeline uh, from the Ivy League to Supreme Court and positions of you know political power in Washington at the state level. Uh, the political science department of Princeton University, I think it was 24 said the United States was a oligarchy, not a democracy. Essentially, 90% of the population was disenfranchised, meaning uh, they didn't. the ruling class doesn't take into what they have to say uh, in policy formation. They have almost no say. Um, and then I can always like to go back to the founding of America. Um, surely America was founded as, an, as a democracy, at least in theory, as an idea. But who was... Who was a participant in that democracy, rich white property male owners, <laughs> rich white property uh, owners who were male. Uh, if you were Native American, you know, in the 1700s, democracy wasn't very good for you. If you're a woman in the 1700s, 1800s, there was no democracy for you either. And of course, democracy has been expanded. That's what we should be doing on the left, expand democracy. Uh, the framer of the Constitution, D James Madison, at the constitutional debates said that Government should serve the opulent minority, or I'm sorry, should protect the opulent minority from the majority. So essentially, you know, the framing of the Constitution, the in, th in theory, it was to try to protect rich white property owners to try to, you know, maintain their wealth, power, and control over society. So obviously, things have changed uh, over the last, you know, several hundred years, which is a great thing, but we have a long way to go. I always like to make this comparison, you know, if you're a leftist, you're on the side of the working class. Unfortunately, it's always an uphill battle. But we're starting, you know, a lot farther along. We have generations of people that came before us, like the workers that were slaughtered in Homestead during the steel, <laughs> during the steel mill, uh, you know, uh, I guess, protests and all that kind of stuff. So I wanted to get to this kind of stuff, though, talking about the system. You know, I like to talk inside and outside the system. Outside the system would be protests, uh, unnecessary illusions, podcasts, blogs. Inside the system would be some of the stuff you're doing, which is great, talking about ballot reforms and that kind of stuff. What do you think of about, um, so I talked a little bit about the framing of American so-called democracy. What do you think about, though, the gerrymandering that goes on? Obviously, I guess it gets done on the right by the, I'm sorry, by the Republicans and the Democrats. Uh, I think, it, I mean, I'm more outraged by, I guess, right-wing, you know, gerrymandering, where a minority of, uh, you know, they can win elections by getting a minority of the votes, which is not a good thing. I'm all about democracy, majority rules. Uh, but the other thing, you know, that kind of hinders democracy, that limits democracy, the electoral college. What do you think about those two things? Oh, yeah, the electoral college is bad news. Um, it's very outdated. And I wish that the I'd like to see every state adopt the National Popular Vote Compact, and that's kind of the only way around it. I mean, if there's no, if there's no constitutional amendment, there's no ever getting rid of the Electoral co College without that. And so short of that, you need to have, I think, a statewide legislative effort to do a workaround, and that's what the National Popular Vote Compact is about. I don't know if you know about that, um, but it's a multi-state effort to 
uh, do an end run around the Electoral College by requiring uh, each state to give its electors to the uh, um, winner of the popular vote in that state. So effectively, it's, uh, it's an end run around the Electoral College, which it would be great if every state could agree that that's what should happen. And then that would basically neuter the Electoral College because every state would have decided we're going to pledge our votes to the popular vote winner in this state, no matter what. So it's anyway, it's kind of like, it's not, you should do some, you could, you could go down a rabbit hole on that. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, the National Popular Vote Compact that i'm interested too because i said how you know the population tends to be a lot farther left than both political parties here in the united states i wonder what percentage of the population would be in favor of just a a popular vote i would i would venture to guess it would be the majority maybe a slight majority but i'm not sure maybe i'll look it up and post it on twitter uh i want to go to let's a couple more things here uh, i guess we're sticking you know with your background in law Let's stick with the politics and the law stuff. What about death penalty, capital punishment? I think that the, you know these pro-life people, it's absolutely absurd. I'm all for um, women's right to choice. I don't really have much of a say on this issue. I think pro-choice, let, let women have a, a say in the matter. They shouldn't be treated like, uh, you know, I don't know, livestock or something along those lines. Uh, but then, you know, the people on the right, they are the ones also calling for, you know, the continuation of this genocide going on in uh, in Gaza. They also, you know, seem to be more so in favor, uh, the right wing of, uh, you know, the American political establishment in favor of the death penalty, capital punishment. So uh, I think it makes, you know, being called pro-life an hypocrisy. What say you, though, about uh, the death penalty and just generally about, like, harsh punishments? I think that uh, generally a society is, um, a, a civilized society would be one with, a little less harsh laws and a criminal and crime and punishment, you know, type uh, system in place. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think uh, the death penalty is terrible, super barbaric, uh, antiquated, ineffective, um, inhumane. I'm completely against the death penalty. So I think um, in some... Well, I think there's some, uh, maybe parts in Europe I saw, like the most heinous crime you could commit, the max penalty is like 20 years. So let's say um, you are, you know, you, someone gets in trouble for a mass shooting, maybe killing hundreds of people. Um, you know, in America, they'd probably be, depending on their state, it would be maybe 50 life sentences or, you know, they would be maybe subjected to solitary confinement, torture, you know, uh, or maybe the death penalty, but um, I, I kind of like the idea of like rehabilitation over like punishment. What do you say about maybe the most heinous act you could possibly think of and the max penalty be maybe 20, 25 years and have the opportunity for maybe that uh, individual to maybe someday reform their life and to maybe get out, get out someday. Do you, would you be in, would you be opposed to that? Do you think life in prison is? No, I'm not opposed to that at all. I mean, I think we should be doing things the way every other Western democracy or social democracy does things like the way Europe does it. You know, I mean, we have a big mass incarceration problem. And part of that is, guess what? Like private prisons. So like, there's like a lot of like, a lot of corporate investment in the carceral industrial complex as well. So like, 
circling back to the beginning of this conversation about corporate capture, we also have a lot of corporate interests in this country involved in the prison industry. So incarceration is a business and of big money, right? So that's one of the reasons why we have such a big problem with it in this state, in this country. Um, and I totally agree, there should be a lot less of it and that there should be, uh, uh, and that the death penalty needs to go the way of, you know, biblical times because it's totally barbaric and ridiculous and ineffective. Totally draconian. Totally draconian. And I've looked at you yeah. know the private private prison industrial complex. I love I love coining these industrial complexes. That's fun. The military industrial complex and onward. The agricult the agricultural industrial complex <laughs> that has captured our food system. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a there's a corporate industrial complex for it. There's a there's an industrial complex for everything. There really is. It's fun to say too, and, and it is unfortunate. Uh, but talking about the private prison industrial complex, uh, these prisons allowed to sue local governments if certain occupancy rates aren't met, putting pressure on judges. How about that for a conflict of interest? Insane. I, I hadn't heard about that, but that's, that sounds on brand. Yeah, they'll, they'll just say, hey, you know, we're not at a certain, certain occupancy rate. We're just going to close this prison and, you know, good luck putting, you know, do, do whatever you want with these. And then that puts pressure on people like, hey, let's try to keep them in business. You know, I, I don't know. It's just just corruption and... Just uh, and and I think um, you know I think the private prisons um, I think that's mainly like in in the red states uh, but I'm sure they exist in not just outside the South you know so but I think generally what we should not have ever are uh, prisons that are for profit I think that's just a horrible horrible thing and I would think the world uh, and the United States certainly would be way better if we closed every single one of these private prisons tomorrow. They are just, they are just really, really bad, ugly, dirty. Talk about the swamp. That is ugly, murky, nasty stuff. All right. Let's go to another institution that I hate, the Supreme Court. Um, I think I, I saw recently when I did a podcast solo one about, it was right around the time Roe v. Wade got overturned. And then, um, uh, the, there was the debacle with the student loans, uh, even though the majority of the country wants loan forgiveness, at least 10, maybe $50,000, the majority of the country is in favor of, although the Biden administration couldn't really get anything done. Uh, and I think the, <laughs> they knew it was going to fail. I think it was doomed to fail. These, uh, this, the lawsuits, unfortunately, were very well funded uh, by right-wing billionaires, uh, you know, and, and kind of like think tanks. Uh, there's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of, Bribes, lavish, lavish trips, dinners, conflicts of interest, settled debts with some of the, the justices, Clarence Thomas, Samuel uh, Alito, I even saw Antonin Scalia. He had uh, tens of thousands of paid trips over the course of his career, or at least over a thousand of these paid trips and dinners and all kinds of stuff. So, um, But I, I just have a major problem. First off, these nine justices appointed, not elected, appointed, not elected to lifetime terms. Uh, at the time, um, the Senate, uh, the founding of the America, I think for maybe the first several decades or more, um, the Senate was actually appointed too. So now they are elected, but yet for some reason, you know, we're, we're not supposed to 
uh, elect justices to, to the highest court in the country. I think that they are ideologues. I think they have some ideology. I think that's pretty clear uh, how they're, um, you know, how they rule on these, you know, major cases. Uh, they pretty much rule on party lines, and it's no coincidence, you know, they're put into power. I, I watched actually a documentary on PBS about Mitch McConnell and his uh, hacking of the Supreme Court and his um, essentially, you know, right-wing, um, you know, getting judges into, uh, you know, positions of power throughout his entire career. He really, did a really good job, you know, doing that. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not on his side. Uh, but just, just generally the Supreme Court, like... Uh, Again, the lowest rating, I think they were around 20% approval rate in this country, so very undemocratic institution. The last time the Supreme Court was expanded, it was in 1869. At that time, the United States had 31 million people. Uh, we now have 331 million people, a uh, 1,000% growth, 10 times that. Um, and yet we have the same amount of justices in bathrobes, you know, essentially determining every facet uh, of our lives. I think that it's a major, major problem here. Um, and I think that, um, yeah, I think we need, first off, I think we need term limits. And I think it'd be a good idea uh, for these justices to be elected, not appointed. And I think the courts should be expanded. Essentially, now that we have uh, a right-wing reactionary Supreme Court for at least the next generation. But, you know, I think all court systems tend to be dominated by the Republican Party, by the conservative party, and that's typical throughout the world. Um, but what say you about the Supreme Court, the justice system, unelected justices, uh, and the fact that the court hasn't been uh, expanded for <laughs> over 100-plus years, even though there's been 10 times population growth that's exploded? What say you about all that stuff? Yeah, I'm, I'm in favor of reforming the Supreme Court. I think there should be more justices on it. Um, I think there should be mandatory retirement age. Um, yeah, those two things, those two reforms alone would help a lot. How about elections? Um, because... How about elections to finite terms? What say you about that? I've, I brought this up with some lawyers that I've talked with and none seem to be in favor of it. For some reason, I don't a know. lot of lawyers... Yeah, I'm not... A, I'm not yeah. I don't know. I'm not in favor of that, but I do think we need um, more justices. I think we need a different way of having these confirmation hearings. I think they're complete circuses. Um, I think we should, Congress shouldn't be able to completely obstruct appointments the way that they have and play games with the rules of the Senate to hamstring appointments. And I do think they should not be for life. I think there should be a mandatory retirement age. Um, so. Yeah, McConnell during the Obama presidency uh, left the seat open for what months or maybe even a year. Yeah, he totally played games with that seat, and as a result, yeah, yeah, he got what he wanted. Though he won, he got exactly he did, what he yeah. wanted. He, he, yeah, he had a, he, yeah, that was the beginning of the end of the playing by the rules. Right, it's like the rule book is out. So, you know, they they make, they get to make the rules and they get to break the rules. And it doesn't even matter. Anyway, whatever. So why why not elect Supreme Court justices? Aren't they just political figures going by ideology and party lines? I gotta press you on it. Why why you why are you in favor of keeping a system that appoints these justices by elites and those in power? Why why not elect I don't know. there's there's like always the question of appointment versus election, right? Like for all of the reasons that we've talked about elections are subject to their influences too, right? 
you know, you have another form of campaigning, another form of funding these positions. Um, you know, with ideally with appointments, you have some breadth of expertise. But I just don't really think, I don't know that elected judges are the answer. If you look at the way elected judges operate in other states, they're beholden to the to these special interests that put them in office anyway. I don't think, I think it's kind of six and one half dozen of the other when it comes to elections versus appointments. The way that Alaska has its judicial system is kind of very elegant, I think. We have a system where um, people, people put in for the judgeship, their colleagues in the bar, uh, rate them in a poll, something called the Judicial Council interviews people who do well in that poll, then selects certain people to from those interviews to be appointed by the governor. And then every so many years, those judges stand for what's called retention in an election. So it's a hybrid system of appointment and election. So I think that system is called the Missouri Plan that system I think can work really well because it kind of gets at the best of both worlds. It puts in, and the worst of both worlds. I mean, appointments have, appointment process has its issues, election process has its issues in, it, in terms of crafting a judiciary. But I think the judiciaries that function the best in Alaska's as a model of judiciary uh, have elements of both. And so I think it would be cool, I think, if, for example, the Supreme Court, in addition to something like a mandatory retirement age, had a had retention elections, you know, which is just like, do you stay or do you go? Um, so, anyway. yeah, I, just to me that I mean, it sounded very technical. Uh, I'm an outsider; I'm no law expert, but sounded to me very elite run, a, a very bureaucratic. Uh, and of course, I totally agree with you. Elections don't solve everything. I'll lead you back to my Emma Goldman quote, of course. Uh, and you know, someone's going to be in charge of those elections. Someone's going to be in charge of you know. Uh, maybe party shenanigans, deciding, you know, who can run, who can't run, what's the credentials, all that kind of stuff. So no matter what, you know, you're going to have some involvement. There's always, I think, going to be, I think a, a classless society is possible, a society without hierarchy and domination, one group of people uh, over another. But ultimately, again, there's going to be people in power that have a say that, you know, whether it's an election or whether it's some, um, you know, board or committee position that, you know, votes on it, it's going to be, you know, probably made up of insiders, law insiders, and that sort of thing. So we're never going to have complete direct democracy. I think it's an idea in theory that's not realistic in the rural world. You know, we don't have that kind of time to vote on every little issue. So I agree with you. I'll meet you halfway on that kind of stuff. I think some of those ideas sound decent. Uh, other ones sounded a little bit, um, you know, bureaucratic, not to my liking generally. Uh, but yeah, I think it's, it's a tough issue because these decisions have uh, a lot of importance in our daily lives, not just the state and local level, but the federal level as well. That's kind of sets the bar. What do you think? I, I read this recently, the, the code of ethics, the, the Supreme Court, maybe the most corrupt body in the country, uh, came up with some code of ethics. Again, Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, uh, these people have a long history of bribery and all kinds of conflicts of interest. What do you think about, um, you know, generally this, this code of ethics, the bribes, the, the dirty money, uh, these vacations that these, uh, you know, justices are apparently oh, receiving? I, mean, I, think they, I think, yeah, I think they need to be policed. They obviously can't handle themselves, so there needs to be some sort of oversight agency of them. Yeah, independent, independent yeah. oversight agency. I, I, I think, would say. I think yeah. they, I think they need that. I think you know they 
they can't behave like ethical adults in jobs. They shouldn't be treated like as such. I do feel bad, though. I mean, these poor people were expecting them to live on a $267,000 salary. Oh, you know no, what I mean? it's a pauper's <laughs> wage. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, let's see, what else do we want to move on to? Which Let's talk about your blog a little bit. We have a few more minutes to go. Uh, maybe we can do this again sometime. It was pretty technical. Let's get some fun stuff. What, do you, what have you been working on with the blog? How long have you been doing it? Are there, are there some issues that you are passionate about that you like to cover? Um, well, yeah, I mean, during the Trump year, I've been doing the blog since 2014, and it used to be mostly a parenting blog. And then during the Trump ascendancy, it focused a lot on him and his shenanigans. And that's kind of what I got in trouble for at work. Um, now I don't do as much on the long form blog. I more kind of just tweet and write little Facebook posts and updates and things like that. Um, I'm, you know, my, my social media presence, I think is still, um, an important part of my advocacy life, but I'm taking a slightly more balanced approach to it and trying to have it not dominate my life as much as maybe it once did. Um, when I have something more, uh, kind of longer form to say, I'll say it in a, a long form blog post, but I only do those every uh, few months or so now. Um, I can't quite recall what the last one I wrote about was, um, but I'm sure it was good. <laughs> I just don't remember what it was, but I enjoy it. Yeah, I've always liked writing. It's always been a hobby of mine. Um, and so my blog, starting my blog and was just always a continuation of that. So. What got you into activism? What's kind of the issues, maybe the key issues for you? Like, I'm all about working class politics, that sort of thing. What, what's your passion? What's What are you most passionate about? What's your activism about? What got you into this kind of political... I mean, um, I think, like, I, you know, I threw myself... Like, First Amendment stuff, free speech stuff. You know, I really believe in that. I'm a, a bit of a free speech absolutist. Um, I kind of got myself, you know, I threw myself into that fire with... Um, my case and everything. Um, so I would say that drives me. I was raised by uh, uh, parents who, well, one of my parents is a public health uh, psychiatrist and she works at the interface of AIDS and mental illness and she's really into equity and healthcare systems. So I grew up watching her be very impassioned about that. So she was always an inspiration for me, and it was her father that was the labor organizer. So I kind of come from a long line of activists. My grandfather was a labor organizer. My mother is a healthcare um, equity champion, and I try to be a free speech advocate. So um, I think it comes from my family. Maybe it's a little bit genetic. I don't know. Um, I try to make the world a little bit better. Uh, I'm not sitting here pretending I'm, you know, Frickin' Gandhi or, you know, Mother <laughs> Teresa or anything and moving mountains. But, you know, I do my, I try to do my little part shifting what the deck chairs around on the Titanic while I'm here, you know. We got, uh, like, less than two minutes. You want to go, like, a few more minutes on another podcast or you want to just wrap it up now and tell people I'm where... good, yeah. I, I, I should wrap it up because I go have some, some things I need to do over here, but... Where, um, where can people find you? Go ahead. Where, where can people find oh, you? Oh, on... Oh, oh, so uh, at Libby Bacalar on Twitter, uh, onehotmessalaska.com, and one hot and one hot mess Alaska on Facebook. All right, thank you so much, one hot mess Libby. I appreciate your time. Let's stay in contact. Maybe we'll do it again in the future. Have a great night. I appreciate your time. Thanks. You too. Great, great talking with you. Bye bye. Bye.
unnecessary illusions. I also want to thank my special guest, Libby Bacalar, One Hot Mess Alaska, for a great discussion on politics, law, and justice. Shout out to Drowning Dog and Malatesta for the music. Again, I am your host, MC Squared. No gods, no masters, I'm out. Like that.